Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 215, being recorded on Wednesday, April 8th, 2020. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. First of all, we hope everyone is staying safe and enjoying some time with your family as we all go through this battle with the, the coronavirus. One of the unexpected trends that we've noticed uh, about this fun pandemic self-quarantining time is that folks are trying to carve out a little bit of time for professional development. So we thought, you know, let's do a show where we talk about some of our favorite books uh, for you know, kind of listeners and starting with kind of the, you know, the kernel of e-commerce and, and retail where we spend a lot of our time, but then also expand out a little bit and, and talk about more professional development type titles. Does that sound good to you, Jason? Yeah, that's awesome. But before we jump into the actual books, I just want to get a couple things on record. Um, like I'm trying to ascertain how millennial you are, Scott. Are you a paper book guy or are you a ebook slash Kindle guy? I am uh, strange, I guess. So I like to read fiction before I go to sleep because if I read like one of these books we're going to recommend before I go to sleep, I won't go to sleep. I get so fired up. I know that's probably strange, but that's how my brain works. <laughs> uh, so then, um, so I, I use Kindle uh, before my fiction reading in the evenings. And then most of my nonfiction uh, before working from home full time, I commuted to an office and this is back in those days, if you remember. So I'd have about a good hour in the car, maybe a little bit longer, and I would audible the uh, nonfiction stuff. I, for some reason, uh, you know that that combination of being on a commute and and having it being read uh, really lands well for me and makes it a little more engaging. Yeah, interesting. So you're mo- so you're very little papyrus in your Kindle slash audiobooks. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Part of the reason is I'm a, I read a lot and uh, I don't, I've never been to your house, but if you came to my house, I have like literally 20 bookcases full of books. So there's a practicality of, you know, my wife and I are both avid readers and essentially every square inch where we can put books is full. So we had to switch to digital. Yeah, no, I, I uh, went through a similar journey. I'm in a condo and I imagine we have less storage space than you. Um, I say imagine, but I know for a fact we have less storage space than you. Um, and the, uh, like it, it, it just like I loved, I loved owning these books, and I felt good about owning them. But like, uh, I just didn't have the space. And then when I travel all the time, it's actually annoying to carry books because if you're going to finish one, that means you have to bring two physical books with you and schlep them around uh, on this on the trip. So I kind of have pivoted to only owning books digitally. And I've actually started this um, economically unhelpful habit. Uh, What I like to do now is I buy the Kindle version and I buy the Audible. Um, And for most of the books, most of the business books, uh, they have this great whisper sync feature where you can toggle back and forth between the audio book and the Kindle version. And it, it keeps you synchronized to the place. And 
what I've found that useful for is if it's a book I'm listening to and uh, there's some super important point that's made in the in the audio version, I like to stop the audio version, crack open my iPad, go to the Kindle, and it's already right what I just listened to, and I can highlight that. And then, you know, Kindle has this great feature where it aggregates all your highlights and notes. So, so it's almost like I can do, I can highlight text in the audio version of the book, which is uh, kind of cool and handy. It'd be cool if you had, uh, does Alexa do this where you could say, have it read it and then pause it and have a highlight like an audio? Could you do a voice audio, voice highlight? Not to my knowledge. That would be a cool feature. Alexa has good features for listening to audible books, but I, I haven't, if there's a, a mark or highlight thing, I have not, uh, uh, experienced it yet. Jeff, if you're listening, um, please take that as a feature request. Thank you. If he's listening, you know, he's listening. Yeah. Um, I didn't then, want to brag, but yeah, I do. I also want to address the elephant in the room before we get into the book, list of books. Um, we, we were having this conversation offline a little bit. Uh, are books even relevant anymore? Like, is it the, like, I, I feel like for a lot of my career books were super important and it was like, I, you know, they're books that were like really influenced how I did my job and things I learned and, and were super valuable. But like today, like, it doesn't seem like the best source for, for timely relevant information. Yeah. Yeah. Think? And to that, and then, you know, attention spans, I definitely feel it personally. And, uh, you know, I see it in my kids, the social media has given us kind of these, this snack size kind of appetite for content. Right. Um, and you know, it, it, it's increasingly hard to just sit down and open up a three, 400 page book, especially like a business book. Um, and then, you know, things are changing so fast that it's hard to find those books that really stand the test of time. So, so yeah, I agree. And then, you know, so because of that, we we've actually thrown in a couple more, uh, you know, we should probably call this a media show, not just books because we have a couple kind of streaming TV shows and movies that, that may be kind of more interesting to certain folks that don't want to sit down with a book, be it audio or, or paper or ebook. Yeah. Uh, and that is funny. Cause I, I, um, you know, was thinking about the books I wanted to talk about on the show, and we're gonna we're gonna go through a bunch of books. Uh, I actually built a web page with a a wider list of book recommendations, and so I was like, "Oh, this will be my comprehensive list of all the books I'd recommend someone read." And there are a bunch of books that are some of my all time favorite books that I actually couldn't bring myself to put on the list because while they were super important when they were written in 1990 or 2000 or 2010, like. I, you know, I, I don't think they did stand the test of time. And so it was interesting to me, like a lot of the the books that were quote unquote about retail, I feel like retail has changed so much. I mean, heck, retail's changed so much from three months ago um, that I didn't find that those books held up really well. But there were a lot of my, my Hall of Fame books about like um, customer psychology and um, those sorts of things, which are uh, super relevant, even though they might be 20 or 30 years old. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's, let's jump into it. Yeah, let's let's do it. Uh, so, uh, side note: uh, if anyone's listening to the show on the exercise equipment, uh, we will put a complete list of all the books in the show notes, and I'll put a link to the website I referenced. So, uh, no need to try to take notes uh, during the podcast. Um, and with that out of the way, let's jump in. What what are you reading right now? Yeah, I thought we'd kind of 
cut them into categories. Uh, and, and since we are talking about, you know, personal development, I thought we'd start with that category. Um, a book I read a couple years ago, uh, and I kind of stumbled on this because I started following his daily periscope, periscopes. He does a daily kind of a coffee kind of periscope. Um, it's Scott Al- Adams, the <clears throat> author of Dilbert. So he's a cartoonist. You may think, what does this guy have to do with anything? Well, he's probably the most educated cartoonist. Well, I don't know if cartoonists are educated, but he has uh, an MBA. Um, he's an economist. He's got you know a lot of different things there. He's a trained hypnotist, oddly enough. Um, so he wrote a book uh, called How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big. Um, I wanted to start with that one because it has two big ideas that I found really interesting. And it, you know, some of these things you kind of are already natural naturally do maybe, but it was cool the way he framed them and talked about them. So the two big ideas from that book are this concept of using systems versus goals. And, and uh, uh, this is super helpful because, you know, he uses a kind of weight loss example where it's easy to say, you know, it's very easy to say, Hey, I want to lose X pounds. And then you fall off that pretty quickly because a goal like that is increasingly hard to get to. If you get off track, it's easy to throw away that goal. Uh, an example of a system would be, you know, I'm going to measure my calories every day and uh, make sure I come out net X calories and exercise to get there. Um, and that's going to be my daily system. And if you can kind of commit to a system, it's a lot easier because you can build it into a day. It's easier to track. Uh, and then, you know, sure enough, you look up and boom, you've achieved your your goal, be it weight loss or whatnot. Um, this This one's really important because you know, I talk a lot to young folks at software companies and things. And the big question I get is like, how do I organize my day? And that's kind of a part of the system too, is making sure that you're, so let's say you're, you're just starting out in a sales career or something, you know, spend time prospecting, spend time managing your pipe and build a system and then improve that system over time. And before long, you've got this really great system for, for managing your life. So that's a really good one. He'll, he goes into a lot more details. Um, the second framework I really like in that book is this idea of continuing through your life to build your skill stack. I have a computer software uh, background um, and knew nothing about finance, marketing. I've never taken a taken some econ classes, but I've never taken like the classes you would take for a business degree or an MBA. So, but I've I've learned all that over the years, um, and you know it's part of my skill stack now. Um, so the, it's this really interesting idea of thinking and visualizing. All right, you want to improve your life and, and your career. What can you add to your skill stack that you don't have? Um, the third point um, in that book that's really interesting is he talks about one of the biggest skills that you can add to that skill stack is persuasion. So, um, you know, persuasion's pretty important. So, so you know, I'm an entrepreneur. So, on any given day, I'm having to convince you know an investor to invest in my company, an existing investor to invest more, a customer to do something, an employee to do something, recruiting an employee. Every pretty much all my day is persuasion, convincing this random guy to do a podcast with me. Uh, those are just examples of uh, you know things that we've uh, that that you use persuasion for. So you know, as an entrepreneur, I use that all the time. But even if I know a lot of our listeners, you know, maybe you're working in a larger company as kind of a, what I would call an entrepreneur. You're kind of on the digital side of a large company. Well, you you actually have a bigger persuasion mountain to climb than I do, right? Because a lot of times you're going to have to convince some dude in a store to give you credit for a sale or to fill an order, whatever it is. Um, so 
so I wanted to also uh, fold in here that Scott Adams has two books on persuasion. One's called Win Bigly. The other's called Loser Think. That's more recent, just came out this year. Um, and then, so I, I, I strongly recommend those two. Um, and then he actually, I like his approach to this a little bit better than some other folks because it's very practical and he gives you kind of, you know, tips that you can actually start to apply, like how to pace somebody and, and these kinds of things. Um, but then once you've read that, then a more technical approach is by this guy that's considered the godfather of persuasion, Robert Cialdini. Um, his two books are Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion. And then he has a newer book called Persuasion, A Revolutionary Way to Influence and Persuade. What's kind of mind-blowing about this is once you get your head around persuasion, Persuasion is you can actually prime people to be persuaded faster and easier. So, so that's kind of interesting. There's actually a step before where you can actually, if you get pretty good at persuading people, you can get better at doing it quickly by using persuasion. So, so those are two, that's kind of a whole class there um, in that genre of persuasion. And, um, you know, the Scott Adams is a really good introduction into this if people haven't really read on it, read about it before. Nice. Uh, I love all of those. And uh, it's funny, um, uh, persuasion, uh, I talk about a lot in presentations. um, And there's a funny backstory to, uh, to the book. He was like a, he was a candidate for his cognitive psychology PhD when he wrote the book. And he basically, in his studies, had discovered that we are all hardwired with these cognitive biases. And um, it dawned on him that evil marketers could use those cognitive biases against consumers and sort of persuade them to take actions and buy things that weren't necessarily in their best interest. So uh, supposedly, he wrote the original influence um, thinking that like, you know what, if he made consumers aware of these cognitive biases, they'd be less likely to be affected by them. And so he he had this altruistic goal of like informing people so they wouldn't be manipulated. Um, and the book became a global international bestseller because every marketer in the world bought the book as a manual to use to trick consumers into buying things. Awesome. Uh, so I just love that story. Uh, I'm a big fan of that category too. And I actually am reading a new book that just came out last month. That's in the sort of, um, cognitive psychology, um, space. It's called, uh, the catalyst, how to change anyone's mind. Uh, and it's by an author. I like, uh, Jonah Berger, uh, Jonah's a professor at, uh, Warden, I think. And, uh, he wrote a previous book called contagious and contagious was all about like, what are the attributes that causes something to go viral? And it became kind of a, a, a Bible in the social media space. And so this new book is about um, how to actually convince someone uh, to change their mind. And like early in the book, he makes the point that like, you know, most people's inclination is to argue with people or debate with people, um, which is an entirely unsuccessful way of getting someone to change their mind. And so he he looks across all these different industries and he finds case studies with like the, the FBI's best hostage negotiator. Right. And he makes the point that like, Hey, you think about this hostage negotiator and he's got to convince someone to do something uh, that they absolutely don't want to do. That's going to have a horrible outcome for them. Right. So give yourself up and go to prison. (laughs) Um, And so he talks about like, the tactics that that negotiator uses and the approach they take to try to successfully, you know, have these like 
super high stress situations come to a safe, more safe conclusion by getting the the criminal to change their mind. And so it's it's fascinating. And there's a bunch of sort of practical advice if you really want to change someone's mind versus just feel good about arguing with someone. Um, uh, it's a super helpful book. So I, I think it's a a good tool to put in the marketing arsenal. Uh, my other recommendation in this category is a new book that just came out this year called Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data. Um, and that's written by Rashad Tabakawala. And I think it was released uh, this January. Hey, Jason, you know Rashad, right? Uh, as a matter of fact, I do. Uh, he's a, a longtime former coworker of mine, and uh, I actually invited him on the show. So uh, without further ado, Please welcome to the show the former chief growth officer at Publicis, a gentleman who was named uh, by Time Magazine as one of the top five marketing innovators in the world, uh, and a guy who could get me fired with a single phone call, Rashad Tabakawala. Thank you very much, and I'm glad to be here. We are thrilled to have you, Rashad. You know, uh, we did overlap at Publicis, and a fun fact, I don't, I don't, you had a much longer and more storied career there than I have had. But I have an annual review every year, and I always sit down with my boss, and uh, he asks what my career aspirations are, and I say, "Well, my ultimate goal is to be Rashad." Well, who are you? You you lack imagination. Yes, I I could see how that would be your perspective, but my boss's perspective is that I should set more realistic goals. <laughs> That's great. You no, know, but all joking aside, uh, you you're uh, someone that has done almost every role in Publicis. You're super beloved. And as you are stepping down from a full-time role at Publicis, you've had this, like, I want to call it like a year-long victory tour, um, where I feel like you visited every office and all your old friends, and you just have this never-ending stream of Twitter photos of you with 10, 20, 30-year friends that you you worked with that are now all the the luminaries and leaders of our industry. And it's it, like, I think it speaks really well to you, this enormous network of people you've, you've uh, cultivated that all uh, uh, at least act in public like they love you. Yes, it's either that or I've collected pictures over the years, one of the two. <laughs> exactly. Well, I'll, I'll let our listeners be the judge. Um, but I do want to uh, get to your book and uh, talk about that. Uh, but a tradition we have on the show is before uh, we get into that, we like to get a kind of brief um, uh, synopsis of, of your career and how, uh, how you sort of uh, develop the point of view that you shared in the book. So can you share with our listeners your background? Sure, absolutely. So uh, I grew up in India, came to the United States after getting a degree in advanced mathematics to get an MBA at the University of Chicago. And I started my career with a company called Leo Burnett, which was an advertising agency. And I thought I'd stay there for two to three years. And uh, 37 years later, I was still there. Uh, but the last time my business card said Leo Bidet was uh, sometime in 1994, which is about 25 years ago. I worked in account service um, on big clients like P&G and then moved into our direct marketing department and saw something called digital in 1994, 1995, launched one of our first digital agencies. Uh, then helped uh, launch Starcom, which is one of our media companies. And then we merged with another company. Eventually, we got bought by Publicis in 2002, which is about 18 years ago. And over the years at Publicis, I uh, helped uh, build the case for some of our digital companies that we bought. 
I chaired Digitas, I chaired Razorfish, and for the last five, six years, I served on what was the director of sort of the board um, as both the chief strategist and the chief growth officer. And about two and a half years ago, as um, Maurice Levy stepped down and he was the CEO, and I'd worked with Maurice and another gentleman called Jack Luce for about 25 years. I sort of said at some stage, I need to do something different. And once they were convinced that what I wanted to do was be a writer and speaker, um, and that I could still be related with the company, we began a transition, uh, which is sort of that tour you talked about. Um, And I am still uh, a senior advisor to the group. I still have an office. My key card still works. Uh, But I no longer am a full-time employee, which means I have no clients to look after, no boss, and nobody working for me. Uh, But otherwise, still connected in some way to the company. And my focus really is writing this book, which I began about three, four years ago, with concept and thinking about it. And the basic trend was I was getting a little bit worried that As the world was becoming more data-driven, more digital, more math-driven, that uh, companies were making mistakes of becoming too left-brain. And uh, I call that the spreadsheet. They were becoming spreadsheet-driven companies. Um, And I believe that successful companies need to combine the spreadsheet, which is obviously very important in the data, but combine also that with the story, which is the people, the culture, uh, the values. And um, and thinking about it over three, four years, I began to realize that companies that combined the two um, were companies that actually did well and companies that tilted either towards the spreadsheet too much, like let's say a Wells Fargo, you began to open fake accounts or like Boeing, you shipped a plane, which wasn't ready. On the other hand, if you what was too much to the right, you end up ended up with a company like WeWork, which was all story, but total bullshit at least from an economic perspective. It's a story. It's just not a true story. It's not a true story. Exactly. So the whole idea is if it's all story without a spreadsheet, you have WeWork. It's lots of spreadsheet without a story. You've got Wells Fargo. But you combine the two, industry after industry, companies that combine the two, not only are more successful in the near term, but their stock price does well and on every sort of stuff. And so I sort of compared Southwest to United Airlines or you know, Pixar slash Disney to a lot of other companies or Costco to the old Walmart. And you began to see that this this basic belief that it was all about data and math was actually very short-sighted and in fact hurt companies more than help companies. And given that I was a digital pioneer, I have an advanced degree in mathematics and people think I know this stuff, I'm not anti-math, anti-data, anti-digital, anti-anything. And so that's what I wrote the book. And surprisingly, it appears that I wrote the book uh, for a post-COVID-19 world. So people said, do you know this was going to happen? And I said, no. The book is as, in fact, it resonates even more today than it did two months ago. Uh, that that is awesome, and it, it's great that it's even more topical. I still have to imagine, from your publisher's perspective, it's it's not optimal to launch a book when you like can't fully go on a book tour, right? Yeah, well, I was somewhat fortunate in the fact that because the book came out on January twenty eighth in the United States and Feb twentieth outside the United States, and I had started uh, sort of promoting the book 
immediately on like January 1, as soon as the holidays were over. So I got to be on the road actually from Jan 1 to approximately March 7th. Uh, so I was, you know, I had good eight, nine, 10 weeks of doing so. Now we've somewhat slowed down, but I have one particular advantage. Um, two really. One is, as you know, Jason, when I speak, I speak without notes or slides or multimedia which basically makes me a very zoomable, skypable speaker. And so I'm still speaking, which helps on the book tour without actually physically going anywhere. But the second thing that helped you know, to a, to a great extent was the fact that uh, my book actually resonates with the times. That six of the 12 chapters seems to have been written specifically for today's world. Like, I have a chapter on how you manage workforces uh, when they're not all together in one place. I have a chapter on how you lead when you've got tough times. And so those two things, which is my ability to basically speak without notes and the fact that people are very hungry in this, including I have a chapter on when you've got time, how to use it, and also how to upgrade your mental operating system, all of which what people are doing. So it turned out to be... um, I wish we weren't in these circumstances, but it's turned out to be all right. But I am looking forward to you know, going back into the work, you know, into the world out there. And and because I was writing about humans and not about an event in time, the book doesn't age. So the fact that there's a pause in the book tour doesn't hurt because when it starts, it won't be problematic. Yeah, it won't be dated at all when you. It won't be dated at all. In fact, it'll be more relevant. On the other hand. Um, you know, it's not pleasant to see what we as a society are going through. So I'm writing a lot these days, and I'm trying to think of the positive side of the troubles we are in. And sort of framing some stuff from my book, I call this era, which I think you saw, uh, not the Great Recession that we occurred in 2008, 2009, but I call this era that we're about to enter the Great Reinvention, because I truly believe that people are going to come out of this different than when they went in. Um, one, because nothing like this has happened before in my 40 years, uh, in fact, in most people's lives, and uh, which is everybody in the world is affected all at the same time, which is rare. The second is we all are affected for 60 to 90 days, and habits change in 60 days. So either you start or stop doing things in 60 days, then when you restart it, it's very different and very you know, unusual. Um, and so I do believe coming out of this, people are going to be looking for safety. They're going to be looking for society. They're going to be looking for security. Um, it's going to be a different world. And so I'm thinking a lot about that these days. Yeah. Um, I feel like another thing I saw you talk about uh, when you were talking, um, sort of uh, coming on the book on social media that really resonated with me is, uh, uh, hey, everyone's saying we're working from home. We, we aren't really this is not work from home. This is work under duress. Yes. So the key is this is completely work under duress because, you know, we have three big challenges and that is everybody who's listening to this. So the first, as long as you're a human being, I think you have these three challenges, but it sort of differentiates a little bit on, who, you know, what your state in life is, et cetera. The first one basically is we are extremely anxious um, about our own health, our 
health of people, our parents, our kids, our team members. So, you know, you normally don't work from home with this anxiety that people are dying in the thousands. Uh, And you could get that if you go to the grocery store. So that's number one. The second is you basically have this particular area of fear. And the biggest fear that we have are two, and most of them are around economic, which is, will my job still exist? Because every day we see companies lay off, you know, between 10 to 50% of furlough, between 10 and 50% of the employees. So that's the second one. And the third is uncertainty, which is, when will this end? How will this end? And nobody works from home under those circumstances where you basically have kids sitting in the house, which you who shouldn't be there, worried about your health, worried about going to the grocery store, worried that your job will disappear, right? That is not under any circumstances working from home. It's basically working under duress. Yeah, no, I, that totally resonated. And it is funny, like, I, I um, like you travel a lot. And so when I'm home, I often do work out of my home office. And pre-pandemic, um, I would be super concerned about my family interrupting a work conference or something like that. And I, if it ever happened, I'd be really embarrassed. And one of the things that's been kind of funny about our present circumstances is I have kind of a cute, um, don't, I won't tell him this, but, but uh, a cute four and a half year old son. Um, and now I almost create an opportunity for him to come in and interrupt every meeting because it's, it's um, almost expected and appreciated. And it, yes. it, it makes me feel uh, uh, it, it helps me like, form a more personal bond with the people I'm interacting with. So I actually posted something that was, it's a real story and it happens to be the CEO of one of our very large clients. Uh, his, ma- his name is Lakshman Narasaman and he's the CEO of Record Ben Seeker or now known as RB, which happens to make products like Lysol, right? Uh, his products actually are doing very well. They're Lysol and they're like uh, Trojans and apparently, you know, condom sales are going up and Lysol sales are going up. Uh, and he basically, there was an interview with him in the Wall Street Journal. And literally, it, the way it ends is his mother, he's living in London with his 79-year-old mother. And his mother comes in and says, you have not taken the garbage. So he stops his board meeting and takes the garbage out. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Uh, the... I, I did want to pick one bone. Uh, I do have a small bone to pick with you, though. You you referenced earlier the no slides thing. Yes. And this is funny. Uh, one of the reasons that I think of you frequently in my career is because like, you do do uh, a ton of uh, client and public presentations, and you're a you know, very in-demand public speaker. Um, and as you noted, like you you never use slides. I've, I've watched you from the, the wings a lot, and it seems like, you've jotted down, you know, you, the key bullet points that you want to discuss on a napkin or something. Um, and, uh, and you walk up there and have this really engaging conversation with the audience. And it feels like there's, there's less detroitus between you and your audience. And I, I, I feel like it really facilitates you um, sort of having a bond with them and it feels more interactive and authentic, um, which is all great. Uh, I also do a lot of public speaking um, and I use a ridiculous amount of slides. So A, it always makes me feel bad about myself because I feel like I'm using a prop that you don't need. Um, but, but even worse than that, I'm usually doing those slides at like 3 a.m. the night before the presentation. And I'm thinking to myself, 
you know, Rashad went and had a nice dinner, had a cocktail, used the cocktail napkin to jot down his notes for the presentation tomorrow and got a good night's sleep. And I'm sitting here at 3 a.m., you know, trying to find the right image to put into a stupid PowerPoint deck. So I'm I'm a little bitter. The big difference is when I see your presentations, I enjoy them and I say, thank God I don't have to do such amazing presentations. Because the big difference is while you do have amazing slides, you you use them as a backdrop, but you speak without, you know, reading numbers from them or reading words from them. You basically use them as sort of a prop, but not as some kind of crutch. So a lot of people use things as a crutch. You don't use it as a crutch, you use it as a prop. But the two reasons or the two or three reasons that I don't do the slides, one is because it requires work. Uh, and as you know, I'm damn lazy. But as importantly, when you do slides, somebody then says they want to see them. And that requires like having a meeting to prepare the meeting, which is a little bit difficult. But the most important reason, and this you can't do, obviously, because you share a lot of very valuable information, which requires you to have those slides. Because when I look at your slides, this isn't just like you're using slides because you're using them because they actually add to the show. But one of the reasons why I don't use slides and why you actually don't use them as much as you think you do is when you don't use slides, uh, people play the slides in their head. So when I'm speaking, actually, there is a slideshow going on. It's sort of like a form of radio. It's like the theater of the imagination. And what I've begun to realize is people think I'm speaking to all of them because they are visualizing their own slideware. And that became what I found as very powerful, which is not only, you know, if it was just that I'm going to save time and be lazy, that doesn't make a good presentation. I'd get fired for doing that. It's because actually, if you think hard enough about the audience and you customize it, which is what I do, people in the audience then actually play it in their own minds. And I think you wrote everything just for them. Yeah, that's awesome. When uh, Jason speaks, people close their eyes and envision the slides, and sometimes they make kind of light snoring noises. Yeah, but you know what happens is he has so many slides, you can't, and his slides are so strange. Yeah. You kind of look at them because you're seeing this big car wreck, train wreck happening, and you're trying to figure out, like, how is this going to play out? That's what keeps you going. Because you should see his slides. They're almost like – it's this almost like Van Gogh on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> this is fun. We get to team up on and give Jason a hard time. I like this. Yeah. In my defense, and I, I, I feel like you, uh, you paid me a nice compliment there, Rashad, which I really appreciate. But the, um, uh, in my defense, uh, it is true. Like my slides tend to be images that support whatever story or or point I'm trying to make, as opposed to actually having the information on the slide. Uh, and so the one thing I do dread uh, is, for your point. Like when a client or a show organizer is like, hey, can you send me your slides in advance or can you do? And I'm like, well, I I can, but they would make no sense because they're not the content. Like they're not the story. You know, it's like it's kind of like asking to see the illustrations from a book without seeing the words. Exactly. Exactly. But uh, that's uh, the, but that's sort of the way it is. And and so one of the, 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 you know, the fun ways I try to sort of also redo just like I thought of rethinking the presentation, uh, you know, Jason, as you read my book, what's unusual is I reinvented the book without people, without changing the format of the book. So the it's obviously available as a book and an Audible and a Kindle and everything else. But 
I sort of thought about that most nonfiction business books tend to only have one good chapter and then somebody just repeats and repeats and repeats. Um, and so I decided to write 12 different books, but instead of it being a book of essays, there's actually a theme and the theme is the story of the spreadsheet. But so I basically said, I've written the first Spotify playlist of a book where you can basically read any chapter in any order. And as a result, people at Amazon are now asking the question, how come they don't have a shuffle mode on Kindle? Yeah. Good. <laughs> the uh, I had a question. You you kind of outlined uh, you know uh, companies that are to excel and and the opposite of the spectrum. Do you have a case study of a company that kind of does a good blend between the two? Yeah. So I I would basically say that in every category I select, I mean in, in almost every category I could name like one particular leader. So in 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 in, in the world of uh, sort of film, for me, the leader always was Pixar because Pixar basically told amazing emotional stories using state-of-the-art technology. Uh, uh, I basically think about in pizza delivery, it's Domino's, right? They improve their pizza, but they basically re they've rethought of themselves as a distribution company or logistics company that delivers pizza. But they really want to own the entire category of pizza, so they're willing to give you a coupon for Domino's anytime you buy any pizza. So now if you go to a grocery store and you buy a pizza, you have to think about Domino's, which is absolutely brilliant. In airlines, it's Southwest, compare Southwest to United. And I believe that the most, uh, for many years, it was one of the most underrated technology companies, though of course that was not underrated, was Adobe. Uh, so if you looked at the decisions that Adobe made, and Adobe right now is the second most valuable enterprise technology company after Microsoft. Uh, and so category, and when you see these leaders, and I know some of these folks who lead these companies, they are these amazing people who combine the spreadsheet and the story. And, they, and, 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 and often it is leadership that makes the difference. So if you think about Microsoft, for 10 years, its stock price went nowhere. And Steve Ballmer yelled and screamed, Windows, 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 right? They did stack ranking, math machines and everything. Then Satya Nadella basically came on. He gave everybody this book, Growth Mindset. He talked about basically becoming a learning organization versus a know-it-all organization. He focused basically on business primarily, right, and productivity. He got out of a lot of the consumer business with the exception of Xbox. Um, and, and in effect, and he got rid of the Windows division. And their stock price went up fourfold in three or four years. And He's a much more humane boss with a company that is much more people-oriented. But on the other hand, its results are better than anybody's. And so, you know, whenever anybody tells me they make decisions with numbers, I tell them two things. One is you are not human being because humans select with their hearts. They use numbers to justify what they just did. And if you work in marketing and tell me you make all your decisions with numbers, you're in the wrong world. On the other hand, if you do make all your decisions with numbers, and let's say you're working in the world of you know, finance, sooner or later, you're not going to have a job because AI does a much better job with numbers and computers do a much better job with numbers than human beings. So anytime you're, making, you're saying it's all about data or all about numbers, my stuff is don't be silly. And for most companies too, with the exception of a few, like at Amazon or Google or Facebook and a few others, data is very important, but I sort of define data as electricity which is it's so important that you can't work in the future without electricity, 
But on the same hand, almost no company differentiates itself by through its use of electricity. I don't see a company saying, I use electricity better because I'm better. Therefore, I'm better. And so there's this confusion, and that was one of the reasons I wrote this book. And it's, it's, it's kind of remarkable because it's, you know, I, I, I found that uh, because the, the focus is it's to help people you know, think, see, and feel differently about how to grow themselves, their teams, and their company, that it is resonating with all kinds of people, CEOs, CFOs, CMOs, young people, because part of it is it's training on how to think. And we've forgotten how to do that. So a big part of this book really is, hey, you have amazing potential. And I call everybody a leader. But here are some things that people may have never taught you and you may want to think about. And that's probably why I think people should read the book, which is it will make you more productive. As a CFO of a company just bought 300 copies for every employee in his company. And I said, you're a CFO. Why are you buying this book called The Purpose of Business and all of that? And he said, well, I read it, and two of the 12 chapters made me 5% more productive. I decided, therefore, that each of my employees would become $10,000 more productive. So what the hell, your book only cost 20 bucks. Bye. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, and that absolutely is one of the things I love about the book is I feel like in my day-to-day life, uh, my colleagues and my clients get like really focused on these shiny baubles, right? Like everything's about the new marketing tactic or the new ads unit or the the new e-commerce platform or whatever the widget is. And it, in the long run, it feels like all of those things are only 10% of the business problem. And the other 90% of the business problem is the, the people behind those tools and how they work together and how they collaborate. And, yes, and, yes. Um, and I feel like your book is a lot of super practical advice about improving the 90% Yes, and it explains what and how to frame the ten percent. And because I know that ten percent so well, I can talk about framing that ten percent, but then focusing on the ninety. Because I truly believe there are only two ways to change a company, and that is to basically either change the people or upgrade the people. It's mindsets, right? Everything else is a press release, yeah. uh, and we don't pay enough attention to that. So this basically says, "Hey, yes, how you pay attention, which is if you can upgrade the ninety percent of the people." how they work, the talent, the skill sets, the company will do better. It's not different than, you know, world-class sports teams. Usually world-class sports teams have a disproportionate share of talent, and then they have a coach that makes sure that they work together and not at counter purposes and they win. Yeah, uh, that is terrific. Uh, On the flip side, though, I feel like one of the challenges with your book is because it has these 12 chapters and they're, they're sort of very varied in topic. It's uh, your book is really annoying to summarize. Yes, uh, and, and that's part of the the, the the two parts of the book that is sort of annoying, which is what is it's hard to summarize. The way I basically summarized it is it'll help you think, see, and feel differently about it to grow yourself, your company, and your team, which is number one. And number two, I would basically say is it basically says that for to succeed, you have to combine everything you know about the left brain part of you, which is the spreadsheet part of you and combine it with the story part. And depending on the situation, that combination can be 75, 30, 25 or 25, 75 or 50, 50. It's never hundred zero. Yeah. Uh, so Rashad, I apologize. Uh, we are coming up on time, uh, but I do want to let our audience know about one other, uh, important Rashad fact. Um, and that is that uh, 
in addition to being a, a, a great business leader and uh, now author, um, you're a very accomplished photographer. And uh, it seems like you you use your opportunity to travel all over the world to capture these uh, uh, amazing um, uh, landscape and architectural uh, photography wherever you go. Uh, yes, it's one of the key things, which is, you know, in, in fact, I mentioned it. There's a chapter on my book on how to use time. And, you know, one of the key things is I look at photography as a way to see the world differently, but also to remember that it's passing us by, which is one of the reasons the opening line of my book is time is the only thing we have. And these days we now truly recognize that time is the only thing we have, whether we have too much of it or we are worried that we will die and have too little of it. Yeah, I feel like in a pandemic, uh, there's two kinds of people. There's working parents that have none of it. And then there's <laughs> there's empty nesters or people without children that like suddenly have discovered some more of it. Absolutely, absolutely. R- Rashad, uh, speaking of time, uh, we, we have sort of run out of it, but I'm uh, thrilled you're able to drive by. And I can't wait for this pandemic to be over so you can get back on the road and you can uh, update your Instagram feed. Absolutely, but thank you again. Thank you for your audience and thanks to both of you all. Bye-bye. Thanks, Rashad. Uh, unfortunately, I have not read your book, but it is on my list and coming soon. So the next category uh, that I wanted to jump into is what I would call startup entrepreneurial books. Um, and again, you know, this is uh, for my entrepreneur buddies out there. Most of them probably read them, but if you're an entrepreneur, I think there's a lot you can pick up from these. Um, so I want to start with some of the classics. So one of my favorites, and I go back to this one probably once every two years, just to kind of remind myself of some of the the concepts is good to great by Jim Collins. Um, He's kind of a recluse and he was just recently did a little PR tour. So there's some podcasts. He did one with, uh, let's see, did he do it with Tim Ferriss and did he do Joe Rogan? No, I don't think he did, but he did a couple podcasts that were, were just outstanding. Um, He has a little addendum to the book called turning the flywheel uh, where he talks about evidently, apparently, he helped Amazon deliver or develop the flywheel that we all talk about all the time. Um, and he has a lot of really other interesting examples of flywheels in that, that little short book. Um, this one uh, actually spoke uh, in the same conference with him recently. And unfortunately he has passed away in the last year. And this is the innovators dilemma uh, by Clay Christensen. This one for the longest time, I couldn't understand in the early days of e-commerce, why big companies were acting the way they were. Like it was so clear to me that this was going to be the thing. And they were like, yeah, we're just going to outsource this whole thing. And and it's going to be a small part of our business. And I'm just like, you know, wanting to shake them and say, Oh my God, can't you see this is going to be the future. Uh, and I didn't understand kind of have a way to put that into, you know, understanding why these big companies were so hard to move. Uh, And then the innovators dilemma came out and I was like, this guy totally nailed it. He totally, this makes a lot of sense now to me. Uh, Another classic one. um, uh, And again, for, for someone like me that starts these new products and has to figure out, right. Why isn't this getting the adoption I want it to? How do I, how do I get up that curve Uh, is called crossing the chasm. Uh, And that's a really good one uh, for any, any kind of a startup, any new product that you have out there. It's got a lot of uh, kind of you know, great ideas for every, every adoption curve has this dip in it. And how do you get across that dip? That's the chasm. And I think that's Jeffrey Moore. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yep. Uh, and then, so those, those are kind of what I'd call old chestnuts. So 
totally stand the test of time. You can pick them up today and they're still extremely relevant. Um, some of the more modern ones, uh, there's one called Zero to One by Peter Thiel. Um, this one's interesting because people have a kind of a binary reaction to it, which is kind of funny since it's called Zero to One. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, most startup people don't like it, but then I found a lot of kind of more general business people love it. Um, so that's interesting. I'd be interested to hear how readers react to it. Um, one of my one of my challenges has been there's not a lot of books for startups when you get past like a hundred people. There's tons of books for how do you find product market fit and like the early days of a startup, but there's there there haven't historically been a lot of what do you do when you get to kind of like ten million and a hundred people? How do you get to a uh, you know a hundred million or a billion? Um, and uh, this is where probably my most my most favorite modern book by Ben Horowitz is called the hard thing about hard things. And it's one of the first books I found where he actually kind of explains all this stuff of how you're going to feel the problems are going to hit when you get to like, you know, employee number 200 and all the things you need to do to push through that. So that's one of my favorites. Um, you know, speaking of that earlier stage, uh, you know, a thing I've practiced that, that this, got put into writing is lean startup. So how do you, how do you get something out and get feedback faster? Um, that's pretty much a staple because agile software development has worked its way into all aspects of companies now, but at the time it was kind of a weird thing to think through. Um, at Spiffy, we, we have to implement a lot of processes and procedures more so than I've ever had to do in any other company. So there's a book there called the checklist manifesto that I found, um, absolutely helpful. Um, and then Ben Horowitz just recently came out with a new book that's kind of more on company culture, which is really good. What you do is who you are. Uh, and then um, one of the last ones, and I actually want to add another one, um, is Think Like Amazon. We had John Rossman actually on the podcast, and uh, I go back to that. Uh, there's a lot of cool Amazonisms in there that that I'm using on a daily basis, like this concept of a two-way door of, you know, if we make a decision, let's be able to get out of it. Um, and I, uh, I found that a really useful framework. Uh, there's like 10 or 20 of these in that book for, for me that, that are really helpful to help explain to someone why we're doing what we're doing. And, and, you know, why would you, why would you try this if we just have a plan for undoing it? Well, you know, here's why we don't want to get stuck on the wrong side of that door. Um, for example, uh, the other one is extreme ownership. And I'm doing this from memory. Um, and this is by Jocko Wil Wilnick. Uh, Ex-Navy SEAL, um, my partner in Spiffy is an, an army guy. And, you know, at, at, when I first read this, it kind of, it's all about, you know, being a Navy SEAL and going out and killing people. You're kind of like, well, what's that have to do with business? <laughs> um, and, uh, but, you know, increasingly, especially in these times when it does feel like we're under fire, uh, I found that a lot of the the concepts in that one are really, really good. And, and um, he has a great podcast to listen to if you want to get super fired up and like, where if you're having a down day uh, and you want to watch some of his YouTube stuff, that's really, really good content to, to kind of get you out of a little bit of a funk or depression. Nice. How about you, I, Jason? I think he's got some, uh, Jocko has a couple uh, extremely high regarded um, appearances on the Tim Ferriss podcast as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And he's on uh, Joe Rogan all the time as well. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, for listeners that are following the, uh, John Rossman was on episode 181, uh, talking about think like Amazon. Um, yeah, so that's an awesome list. Uh, I am reading another book that I would kind of put in this category, uh, that came out this January called, uh, future is faster than you think. Um, and it's, it's by this guy. I don't, I, 
knew nothing about uh, Peter Diomedes, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name properly. Um, but this uh, is a topic that you and I talk about a lot. It's this this concept of um, exponential growth um, and how uh, everything, particularly in technology, is getting adopted at a much faster rate than ever before. And so it's kind of a, a, a framework for, for thinking about how... Um, how to operate in a world in which the future is coming at you faster um, than ever before. And so, you know, it's like, as we're doing this podcast, uh, Disney plus just got its 50 million subscriber. Right. And it, you know, five years ago, it took Netflix much longer to get 50 million subscribers. And, you know, way before that it took HBO much longer to get uh, 50 million subscribers. So uh, just kind of a, uh, an interesting, helpful book to sort of help you think about, um, running a business in a in a in an accelerated world that's growing at an exponential rate. Yeah, he's uh, one of the founders of Singularity University with um, Ray Kurzweil. Yeah, hence the his, his, his hence his love of exponential growth. Yes, absolutely. It's kind of interesting because uh, I you've, you've I think you've seen me talk about this, and I I lead with that example a lot of times of the exponential growth and how we're not used to it. It's really interesting in this world of, you know, viral contagions, um, that there is a bunch of people that just can't get their head around exponential growth. They're like, you know, well, 0.001%, what does it matter? And you're like, well, you know, if you keep moving the decimal every other day, it adds up pretty quickly. Yeah. I think, unfortunately, a lot of people are learning about exponential growth in the context of the pandemic right now. Yes. Yeah. the, The hard way. Cool. Anything else on the general books, uh, general business side? Uh, no, I, I have a, a longer list again, I'll put on the, on the webpage, but, uh, that, you know, that I think that's a great, great list for now. Cool. So then the, the third category we wanted to talk about is what I would call kind of e-commerce retail, digital retail payments and, and that kind of thing. Um, in this category, I found the ones that hold the better test of time for me and are a little more engaging are what I would call business biographies. Um, so one of my favorite in the world of retail is Sam Walton, Made in America. This one's hard to find because it's out of print, so you have to buy it kind of used. But it, it's really good. It's got a lot of great stories about um, you know how um, Sam would just fly around America and you know be over some city and be like, "We're going to put the Walmart there," and you know he's in his little you know kind of a I don't know what kind of plane it was, but um, and then you know sure enough they would build a Walmart there. Uh, so that's a really good one. Um, talks about you know the whole concept of Walmart and how he scaled it up. That's pretty amazing. Um, in that same genre, Ken Langone, who started one of the founders of Home Depot, he has a book called I Love Capitalism. That's kind of his life story. And it talks about, you know, how he used to work for a hardware store and thought there could be a better way and did the big box thing. And it's really, really a good history of retail. Um, and, you know, um, just like Sam, he's had a, a very rich kind of post Home Depot business life also. And then as we get into the world of e-commerce, uh, the perfect store, which is uh, you know about eBay um, from Adam Cohen, that one's a bit bit old, but still holds up pretty good. I think the eBay story is really interesting from a marketplace perspective. Um, the, a good Google case study is called In the Plex. The Facebook one that I recommend is called The Facebook Effect. It's not as salacious as a lot of the other Facebook ones. Um, it really talks more about you know the the iterative way they they built Facebook. 
Um, the best kind of the go-to Amazon book is called the everything store um, by good friend, Brad Stone. Uh, you can actually find my name in that book. If you want to uh, go a little spelunking there. And then um, a bird, a little bird told me Brad's working on maybe either an update to that book or a new book. So I'll be kind of watching for that. So much happens with Amazon, you know, of course, regular listeners know we spend probably half our time talking about all the new stuff coming out of Amazon that it's hard for him to keep that up. Um, and then uh, Doug Stevens, who uh, is, you know, speaks at a lot of the events we go to has a really good book uh, in the world called in the world of retail called reengineering retail that, that I think is interesting. It kind of um, talks more about experiential kind of retail and a lot of the topics you talk about, Jason. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, all good ones. Um, the, it's, it's funny. I read a ton of business biographies. Um, and I, I love reading them. I do feel like some of them have these like pearls that are evergreen and some of them are like super interesting at the time, but I'm not quite sure, uh, have as much legs. Um, uh, so, you know, it, it, uh, it, it is a little interesting, you know, uh, other business biographies that I've, I've read recently, uh, you know, not too long ago, we had Larry and Gracia on from the Billion Dollar Brand Club, um, which is cool because it's talking about a lot of direct-to-consumer um, biographies. Uh, many of those stories are not completely done yet, so it feels like a, a work in progress. Um, another book that's sort of uh, loosely a business biography also on Amazon is um, Amazon for CMOs, uh, which is by um, uh, uh, Kiri Masters. Um, so I like that. But the the book I'm reading right now in this category of um, kind of like specific retail advice is called uh, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Digital Disruption. Um, and that's by another guy in our sort of speaker and social media ecosystem, uh, Steve Dennis. Uh, and he was a longtime uh, uh, executive, JCPenney, and then uh, later Neiman Marcus. Um, and, uh, so I've, I've read the book, but it actually doesn't launch until next week. So it's, it's releasing on April 14th and, uh, because of the pandemic, he can't go on a book tour. So he's having a virtual book launch on, uh, on April 14th at like 4:15 uh, in the evening. So if you happen to be listening to this episode before Tuesday, I'll put a link in the show if you want to join the virtual book launch. Um, and, uh, I, I will be participating and, and, uh, uh, having a conversation and there's going to be several other, uh, uh, surprise, uh, e-commerce guest stars. So, uh, it might, might be a fun, uh, way to hang out on Tuesday afternoon if you're available. Very cool. I've never seen a virtual book launch, so it's going to be exciting to see how that goes down. I'll, I'll look forward to seeing how he signs books across zoom. Exactly. <laughs> it's gotta be some way. Yeah, I'm I'm leaving that to Steve. Well, and then for those folks that do not want, or if you've read all these books already, um, or you're not into books, that's not your thing. Um, this category is kind of multimedia, so shows, movies, streaming, anything in that kind of category. Um, one of my kind of all-time classic business movies is Glengarry Glen Ross. You can't work with a sales team unless you've watched this. And this is where all these kind of chestnuts of ABC always be closing coffees for closer closers. There's a lot of uh, kind of um, sales people language that comes out of this movie. And it really kind of, you know, uh, catch some, does a good job of 
you know, articulating to people that aren't in sales, what it's the pressure of being a salesperson can feel like. And of course it's amplified like, like nothing else and mistakes are much higher than in reality, but it, it's pretty interesting how they do that. Um, another fun one is boiler room, same kind of a thing. Um, wall street, you got to put that in there. Um, classic Michael Douglas wall street, uh, the social network. That's a really good one to kind of see a dramatization of, of how Facebook was created. The music in that is, is exceptional. Um, this is one that I find a lot of people haven't seen. It's called Girl Boss, and it's on Netflix. It's a Netflix original, and it tells the story of how uh, a retailer, Jason, you're going to have to help me out with her name, Sophia Amorosa. Is that right? That sounds right to me, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so she started this this uh, apparel uh, e-commerce site called Nasty Gal, and fun fact, it actually started out as an eBay um, so she started out as an eBay seller. Um, so this is really cool because it kind of shows this, and I'm really super familiar with this life cycle because it, at my company, I started channel advisor. We have like thousands of customers like this where, you know, it started out as she, she wanted to make money to go buy something. So she started collecting vintage stuff, finding it and selling it. And then suddenly, you know, you look up, and your apartment's full of boxes and you're, you've got a seven figure eBay business. And then she kind of graduated out of that into a retail facility. And um, so that did a really good job um, kind of showing that life cycle that that's really common for a lot of uh, how a lot of e-commerce businesses are born. Um, you have to watch office space. That's kind of a classic uh, comedy around kind of what life in the office is like. Um, Jason, as a consultant, I feel like you, you, you live that every day effectively. Um, and then another good one is startup.com. Um, and this is kind of a, a documentary about these guys that started a company. Uh, and it's classic because a lot of times you see this sad situation where these, these founders will get together. They've never really met each other. And then they spend like the next two years just excruciatingly arguing with each other and ending up with zero. So, so this, this one kind of covers a situation like that. And it's a good, um, you know, warning of if you're going to start a company, Pick your founders a little bit, you know, uh, carefully, and then make sure you have those tough decisions early versus at the very tail end of the whole thing. Um, on TV shows, uh, I really enjoy Undercover Boss. That's kind of a cool way to see. Uh, it's so it's a little staged, and you know, more than three or four of them kind of get old. But you know, if, if there's a certain business you want to kind of learn more about, it's a good way to do that. Um, Shark Tank is a lot of fun to watch with a family and kind of guess, you know, it's a fun thing to see, you know, Hey, would you invest in that company? And what do you think their valuation should be? Um, another really good one is the profit. This is on CNBC. Um, and this guy, you know, uh, I always get his name wrong. Liam. Marcus Liamotis. Liamotis. Um, he owns uh camper world. You'd probably know it better than I do. Yeah, correct. Uh, and all pretty much most of the sporting goods things, except for Dick's, right? Yeah, he's acquired a number of them recently in bankruptcies. So like Overton's, Gander Mountain, for example. Gander Mountain. Yep. Yep. Uh, there may be more available in the near future. <laughs> yeah. So uh, a lot of his, a lot on the profit, um, you know, there's a good diversity of companies he goes in and turns around, but there is a fair amount of retail there. Um, they're not big box. They're usually kind of local retailers. How about you, Jason? Any anything in the multimedia category? Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, uh, I like to watch a uh, binge watch shows uh, while I work out, and we've all had a little more time to exercise lately. So I've caught up on a bunch of stuff that was in my backlog. Um, so I just recently finished the the last season of Silicon Valley, um, and 
to me, that's super important because I, I don't know if everyone knows this, but it's loosely based on uh, Get Spiffy. Let's hope not. Yeah. So, uh, except Spiffy's going to end better, but but uh, the characters, cool. uh, the characters are very very similar. So that uh, super funny and a, a great parody of Silicon Valley. Um, there's a much less popular show uh, that I really enjoyed that AMC made uh, called uh, Halt and Catch Fire, um, which is kind of a a dramatized uh, documentary of like the the early 80s birth of the PC uh, Atari kind of um, uh, era. And it, it's, it's pretty fun and mostly historically accurate, which is cool. Um, another one uh, that folks tend to have not heard of, but for retailers, I think is a great one, is called Mr. Suffrages. Um, and so this is a BBC show that was done about three years ago, and it stars uh, Jeremy Pivens um, as this iconic retailer, Gordon Suffrage, who um, was uh, a, a senior executive for Marshall Fields here in the U.S., moved to London and opened their first um, department store uh, called Suffrages. And a lot of the the retail um, best practices that we still use today and a lot of the slogans you hear in the retail industry all came came from him. Uh, so things like uh, the customer's always right, for example, are uh, is, is one of his quotes. Um, and he led a very interesting, colorful life. So there's a good soap opera quantity, uh, quality to the, to the storytelling. So that's a, I think that was a couple of seasons that BBC did. Um, I also recently, uh, caught up on succession, which is excellent. And I imagine plays out in the Wingo family when they're talking about the Spiffy empire. So, um, highly recommend everyone watch that. Uh, I feel like you got to watch Mr. Robot so that you know not to store any of your secrets on anything digital. Um, and then uh, I uh, love Black Mirror, which is kind of a, uh, a BBC remake of Twilight Zone. And it's all these stories from the near future. Uh, and I use quips from this show all the time at work because there are all these um, sort of scary, probably realistic projection of like what our life is going to be like in five years so that that's like uh when they when they paint the picture it, it it's uh kind of concerning very cool yeah i love black mirror do you like the uh the last season had the um automated uh, pizza delivery van that was kind of cool yeah yeah there uh it's funny all these shows are starting to work these like near real-time things and i also I'm, I'm watching westworld right now and uh they just had like in the last episode this week, like, like in the background, while two characters are talking, you see like four SpaceX rockets, like land. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I saw it. That was funny. Cool. And then the last category is what I would call non-conventional, um, you know, areas to go learn interesting things. Um, one thing that I find is underutilized by a lot of folks is, you know, there's all these public companies in our, our category. And if you're interested in any company that's public, um, part of being public is they have to disclose tons of stuff. Um, so one of the, my favorite documents to read is the S1. So when a company's about to go public, it files this document with SEC called an S1. Um, and it's this, I like to call it a poop sandwich. So it's kind of got, it's, it's a really weird thing having done this. You have to kind of say, you, you know, 
our company is terrible. You probably shouldn't invest. And then you say, well, here's why we think it actually is okay. And then you like you end and you're like, but there's all these risk factors and we're pretty sure it's not going to work out. So, so you have to kind of find that meat in the middle, which is the really good stuff where management actually describes the business in their own words. Um, it's called the management disclosure and uh, MDNA and I don't know, I forget that, uh, but um, just look for management discussion. And so that's really, really a cool way of reading things. So, uh, you know, kind of thinking about our audience, the stitch fix one had this really interesting description about cohorts of customers and how they applied AI to those. Um, Chewy had a really interesting one around how their subscription business worked. Casper t- had this really really well thought out um, discussion of CAC versus LTV. It's, it's oddly some of the best business writing you'll find in for modern companies kind of buried inside of there. So, so I know that's a weird hobby, but that's uh, I really like to read those. And then if there is a business that you find fascinating, like I'm obviously a bit obsessed with Amazon. I listen to all their conference calls, read their quarterly reports and those kinds of things. Um, other ones in the industry, I would recommend eBay. Um, Shopify has some really interesting kind of conversations on theirs. Um, you know, one, one that was kind of top of mind this week um, on the, the furniture side is Wayfair. So they've, they've kind of, uh, they saw a sales spike to like 30 or 40% due to this quarantine. So I'm going to be interested to hear what they have to say. Um, Etsy has seen an increase as people have been cocooning or nesting. Um, Alibaba is always interesting if you're interested in the China side of things. Uh, and then, you know, every public company has an investor relations site and on there, they typically have their latest presentation they give to analysts. And that's another really interesting way of seeing how these companies talk about themselves. You'll get a lot of really good presentation ideas because, you know, these companies, you know, you know, if you go look at Facebooks or anything, they've probably spent cumulatively $300,000 on the graphics in this one deck. So, so you can kind of crib some good, you know, deck graphics, if you will, from looking at some of these really high-end investor relations decks that are out there. So I like to poke around on that stuff as well. Yeah, that's awesome. You actually turned me on to a related resource. Uh, when these companies are doing IPOs after they they file um, the S1, uh, they go on this roadshow to, to sort of churn up investors. And uh, a video of a lot of the roadshows is at least temporarily available in a lot of cases, right? Yeah, there's a site that no one really knows about um, called Retail Roadshow, and they're they're up there for a very short period of time, um, which is frustrating because it'd be fun to go back and look at like you know the Amazon Roadshow or something. Um, uh, but they are really really good. So you know, let's see. One of my favorites recently was the Uber and Lyft ones were really good. Um, yeah, they're, 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 uh, the Stitch Fix one was was excellent. Um, so that that's another really good kind of a, you know, area to go. And, and you have to kind of, unfortunately, you have to go kind of like log in. If, especially if you know a company is going public, you can kind of see when it's coming. Um, with this uh, economy we're in right now, there's not going to be anything probably for six months. But <laughs> keep it in the back of your mind if you hear, oh, Airbnb is going to go public, Airbnb or whatever. Um, you can go and watch that um, as well. Yeah. And then uh, sort of a special case of the the investor conference calls, um, a number of these companies put out annual shareholder letters. And of course, the the Amazon one is particularly famous. And that, like, that's one of the things I always look forward to every year is the new Amazon shareholder letter. And the all-time classic is the 1997 version of the shareholder letter. And it's so classic 
that he reprints it in every new sh- at the end of every new shareholder letter. Um, and then, uh, like on the, I don't know if I'd say opposite end of the spectrum, but another shareholder letter that's like uh, uh, slightly less retaily is Warren Buffett's uh, Berkshire Hathaway um, shareholder letter uh, that always has a ton of uh, interesting insight in it. And uh, you know, side note, people forget, but but uh, Warren Warren is a very big retailer that owns a bunch of of retail in that portfolio, so so it tends to be retail relevant. Um, awesome. So that is a plethora of resources for anyone that's looking to consume some new information. Uh, and again, like I'm going to try to put a superset of this on the website and I'll put some links in there um, to sort of like the all time classic list of books, including all the books we have here. And in the show notes, we'll try to put a, a list of everything we talked about on the show. Um, but we've ended up using up a little bit more than our allotted time. So we should probably rack uh, this up as always. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, we sure would appreciate a review on uh, iTunes. And uh, if we miss some resources that we should include, definitely hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. We'd love to add to the list and learn some new things that Scott and I should read. Thanks everyone. We hope you enjoyed uh, this list of uh, books and other media on how to improve your, your, situation while you're self-quarantining and until next time happy conversing you've been listening to the jason and scott show for all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing subscribe to us on itunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com 